Welcome to the Faster Forward podcast by Northern Trust Asset Servicing. My name is Mark Mallett, Head of Platform Strategy and Marketing, and I'm joined today by Grant Johnsey, Head of Client Solutions for our Capital Markets business. We're here to kick off a new subset of our podcast called Monthly Market Pulse. Grant, if you could just give an intro of yourself and your role and you know, why it is that uh, you know, we've brought you on the podcast today. Thanks, Mark. I'm excited to be here today and excited about this new series that we've got going. Uh, again, Grant Johnsey, I have been in capital markets my entire career. I have worked in uh, various markets, including overseas markets, uh, the stock market. Uh, I've also helped manage the fixed income trading desk at Northern Trust, as well as the options business. And now I'm involved in all of the different divisions of capital markets, really with an eye for understanding what's going on in the market, some of the structural changes that are happening, and how that relates ultimately to our clients. How do we help our clients navigate what's going on in the markets? And ultimately, how do we solve any problem situations that they may encounter? So Grant, I know you've been spending a lot of time recently writing about the treasury markets. Why have you been focused on that? Really, the focus that I've had is on the interest rate environment. And one really good way of monitoring the interest rate environment is looking at the treasury market, which here in the United States becomes the basis for our yield curve. It's the risk-free rate that essentially all the other fixed income instruments are ultimately priced on. And the reason I'm focused on the interest rate environment is we are going through a giant shift in the environment right now. We've had a period of declining interest rates that started in the early 80s. That continued for essentially three decades. By the uh, 2008 global financial crisis, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee uh, slashed the Fed funds rate all the way down to zero. And we kept that rate for the better part of a dozen years, essentially, really up to and including the beginning of the pandemic. So what I'm really looking at is this once in a lifetime, in my opinion, shift between a declining and uh, low, ultra low interest rate environment to one of uh, moderate interest rates and a secular uh, period of interest rates being higher. And I think that's really going to change the investment market and the environment that we're in in a significant fashion. Yeah, and I guess what leads you to believe, or what evidence do you see that would have us face a higher interest rate environment for a longer period of time? It's, it's a good question. It's one I've really been looking into for the last couple of years as we have had uh, a rise of inflation and we have had some of the fastest hiking that we've seen from the FOMC. Some would argue that the Federal Reserve has looked back at how long they held rates down to zero and realized that that created a number of bubbles and, and other uh, anomalies in the market that they don't want to repeat. I don't necessarily want to speculate what the Fed will or won't do because we all know if there's a significant recession or worse, then they're obviously going to cut rates all the way down potentially to zero. So you're still going to see some rates ebb and flow. But the, there's two uh, proof points that I think mean we are going into a long environment of, of rising interest rates, of moderately higher interest rates than we've seen. And, and that is, number one, the budget deficit that the federal government of the United States currently runs. It's a massive deficit. I don't think folks really understand or appreciate how big that deficit is. Um, I think it's big enough that you're going to start to see the amount of borrowing that the U.S. federal government has to do push up interest rates, uh, certainly in the United States and probably even have an impact worldwide. And then the other uh, element that I see is a period of inflationary trends. 
if you go back and look at the, the 80s and, and really into the 2000s, we had a number of trends that were disinflationary. Those have by and large given way to inflationary trends. So it does appear that inflation is going to be a little bit more stubborn than it has been in the previous decades. So Grant, why is the budget deficit so relevant now? Yeah, it's a, another interesting point because we've heard for so long around how our federal budget deficit's a problem and a lot of people have gotten tone deaf to it. I think on top of that, when we talk about our federal spending deficit, the number right now that you'll hear a lot is a 6% deficit number, which doesn't really seem that bad if you think, well, my you know, budget's 6% uh, you know, above what my, my inflows are. But actually, the 6% number that's often quoted is as a percentage of GDP. And the reason we talk about federal deficits and, and sovereign debt as a percentage of GDP is just to normalize how we talk about it, whether it's a historical perspective or relative between two economies of different size. The reality of it is, in 2023, the federal government spent over $6.1 trillion while taking in only $4.4 trillion in inflows. So the real budget deficit, if you actually look at inflows and outflows, is more like 38%. Moreover, the deficit number of last year, 1.7 trillion, it was almost 1.7 trillion, is a massive number. We, we oftentimes get blinded talking at the federal level in billions and trillions, and again, we become somewhat numb to those numbers. So let me put this into perspective to give you a sense of the sheer borrowing that the federal government needs in order to pay all the bills and to meet the obligations that uh, we and Congress have put forward. The $1.7 trillion is more than the U.S. At, in total saves in a single year by about $200 billion on an average year. So in other words, if every person in the United States took all the money that they saved, and that's everybody, and bought treasuries with it to finance our government's deficit, we would still need about $200 plus billion in assets from foreigners to bridge the gap. So that's one way to cut, put into context the sheer volume that our government needs to borrow right now every year. And that number is not going down. Over the next three years, so if you take 23, 24, and 25, we actually find it's about $5 trillion right now that we are projected to have to raise to pay our obligations at the federal government level. And what's really scary about that is $5 trillion is actually more than the entire outstanding balance of the municipal bond market. So again, if you think about 1.7 relative to what we save in a year, if you think about the $5 trillion relative to the entire municipal bond market, it's really hard to fathom a situation where interest rates don't go up because the sheer supply of treasuries coming into the market is such that in order to attract the demand, interest rates are probably going to remain a little bit higher than a lot of folks realize at this point. The other issue the federal government has right now is that we are not anywhere near being able to balance our spending. So yes, we're in a 38% deficit. It was worse during COVID as we were uh, printing money essentially to pay for a lot of the, the you know, support to the economy that, that the government did during the pandemic. But even if you look now in quote unquote more normal times, the balance of social security spending plus defense spending, all of our Medicare, Medicaid, health, healthcare spending and our interest spending is already 103% of those inflows. It's about 4.5 trillion versus 4.4 trillion of, of our actual inflows and tax receipts and so forth. So all the discretionary spending that Congress talks about isn't really discretionary spending, it's all borrowed money. 
Uh, and these costs are not going down in the near future, right? Defense spending is probably going up. Social Security is most definitely going up. And, and health costs aren't coming down in the near future. So one, how, how does that compare historically? Like, when, you know, so where are we today, like, you know, versus, you know, maybe where we were pre-pandemic or, or, you know, in the, the, the past? The, the pandemic really put us into a, a, a bad spot, obviously, because, you know, depending on what measures you look at, we, we raised uh, an additional five to seven trillion dollars in debt during the pandemic to pay for the PPP program and to put money in people's pockets. There are several different, uh, you know, uh, stimulus uh, it, it bills that the Congress passed over the pandemic. So um, over the last 10 years, roughly, you've seen the federal deficit go from about $17 trillion to over $30 trillion now. So while we've been talking about the federal deficit for a long time, the last few years have been particularly painful. And going forward, it doesn't look much better. The other interesting thing that's going on is a lot of these projections assume the ending of the 2017 tax cuts. So when you look at the CBO numbers, right, the Congressional Budget Office's numbers, they actually assume that these tax uh, tax breaks expire at the end of 2025, when in reality, they probably will not do so. And if you factor in these tax breaks, uh, in 2026, uh, numbers around 200 billion of additional deficit, you fast forward into 2027, it, it creeps up to 400 billion and so on and so forth. That If these tax breaks are extended, that would be the impact to our deficit an additional 200, 400, and on up billion of deficit on top of some of the projections that you'll see from the CBO right now. So then all of that uh, some borrowing that the government needs to do um, is part of what's keeping interest rates high. So even if the Fed starts to cut interest rates, is, is that part of the reason you would still expect to see interest rates you know, remain at these levels because it's these two things that are uh, driving interest rates higher? Yeah. So the Fed's, you know, when we hit a recession or, or worse, we're going to see the, 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 you know, Fed funds be cut. That's going to happen. And again, we're going to see still interest rates ebb and flow, but it's going to be, in my opinion, at a higher rate overall. And I also think the the real nominal or the real rate uh, of inflation is going to be positive, right? Um, so not only a nominal rate is going to be a little bit more moderate, but I also think we're going to be in a period of positive real rates. That's a situation we haven't seen for quite some time uh, in this country. So uh, there's going to be an ebb and flow, right? But ultimately, we're already seeing that impact today. So uh, once a quarter, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee uh, puts out a study that, uh, and actually a recommendation to the Department of Treasury. And one of the things that they just came out with, and this goes back to October 31st, is they've highlighted the fact that they're already seeing the supply of bonds start to overwhelm the demand for them, of treasuries, this is. So they've already commented that that's a problem. And what you're actually finding in the market right now is the the Treasury Department likes to see around 20% of our debt issued in the form of T-bills. So we're talking one year and in. What's actually happened in 2023 is over 50% of fresh treasuries are being issued as T-bills. Now, that's the sign of part of the demand for the longer dated T notes and bonds being less than it has been historically because of the sheer size of issuance. And that's a problem, right? That's a concern that we've got. That also magnifies this problem because all of those uh, bills, being that they're one year in, also have to be rolled forward. So what the Fed and the Treasury ultimately wants to see happen 
over the long term is what they call terming out, which is taking some of that shorter term debt and going further out into the yield curve. They, the Treasury Department actually took some heat on that in the last couple of years because they didn't term out as much when interest rates were low. But there again, there wasn't a lot of demand to do that. So it wasn't entirely their fault. So we're already starting to see we had a bad 30-year auction a couple of weeks ago. And we're already starting to see the impact of this in the way that the Treasury Department is issuing bills, notes, and bonds be reflective of demand starting to be a little weak relative to the sheer supply of Treasuries that are being issued. All right. Is there any good news out there? I just, you know, we just had the inflation report, you know, come out um, and it looks like inflation's leveling out. You know, the October report showed um, core inflation was, you know, at 3.2 percent, which was down over, you know, the, the last few periods. Is that going to, you know, help at all? What is, you know, what is, what do we think the impact of sort of the, the recent inflation news is? Right now, things seem to be in a pretty good spot. The, the U.S. economy is more resilient than a lot of people thought it would be. Inflation does seem to be moderating. Now, inflation is still running at 3.2 percent. I think it's going to be much harder than the than anyone realizes to get it markedly below there. You're already seeing some real-time CPIs start to trend up a little bit, which could be a sign that when the the next inflation report, which comes out mid-December, uh, might be for November, might be a little higher than the market expects, maybe even by January. You're not seeing anything crazy with big, big spikes in consumer or producer prices. But keep in mind that what we're looking at with the CPI numbers from the Bureau of Labor is dated. It's stale. They're using a basket of goods that can be as old as two years, and they're usually looking back at least a month, month and a half as to what inflation was. So what we really have to look at is what's the next report coming into. And inflation right now does seem to be trending slightly higher than where it was in October. That said, the bigger issue is the types of trend lines that we've seen in the prior 30 to 40 years that helped interest rates go down in those trends now. So if you go back and you look at some of the drivers or uh, I really say disinflationary drivers over the last 40 years, right, if you think about things, it's offshoring, right? Um, now it's being replaced with more unshoring. So that was a disinflationary trend, and now it's an inflationary trend that's reversed. If you look at the proliferation of just-in-time inventories over the 80s and 90s, now that's being replaced with resilient supply chains. If you think about... Uh, global conflict, right? We had a period, uh, you know, with the ending of the Cold War and even in the 90s and, and early aughts with relative peace. That was, you know, over the last few years, we have a lot of global conflicts and we're seeing defense spending have to go up a, a lot more. If you think about free trade, a lot of free trade proliferation, open globalization, moving production to the low cost producers, that's being undone a lot now um, and potentially in, 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 the, in the name of of uh, protecting natural uh, national interest. So you now have a series of trends that are the opposite of the disinflationary trends that I think are going to make inflation stickier. The wild card is going to be technology, right? Technology tends to be disinflationary. Um, and you and you saw that in the 80s, 90s and aughts with obviously the PC that came around into the internet and then the smartphones. You have AI coming in and AI is going to be an amplifier. So it's going to be disinflationary. How much it will will have an impact. No one knows yet. But by and large, the trends that we're seeing tend to be more inflationary. And I think that's also going to make it harder to get interest rates down uh, back to where they were before the pandemic. So Grant, what does this mean for our clients? Ultimately, what this means, Mark, is that what worked over the last 40 years is probably not going to work in the same way going forward. 
We've come out of a period of these declining rates from very high levels in the early 80s, and then we had ultra-low interest rates for many years recently. And the thinking from the market is that we're going to go back to, quote-unquote, normal, but that wasn't normal. It wasn't normal to have that type of interest rate decline and then a sustained period of ultra-low interest rates. Ultimately, in markets, nothing lasts forever, and it's impossible to maintain ultra-low interest rates for forever, um, and there's not much more to decline from. So I do think there's an environmental change that's happening in the investment environment, and I think it's not cyclical. It's bigger than that. It's going to last through several economic cycles, in my opinion. So, Grant, is there anything that's happened recently that really highlights the impact of, of this current environment to you? Absolutely. The banking crisis that we saw in the U.S. in February and March of 2023 was directly the result of this shifting interest rate environment. Yeah, it reminds me, you know, of, of a quote that you know I recently heard um, from James Herbert, you know, the founder of uh, First Republic, and he said something, you know, on the order of, you know, clients stay with us, they grow, they compound their deposit, their deposits compound, and they bring their friends. Uh, and it you know, really wasn't a complicated model, and it works in all environments until it doesn't. Yeah, that's a great right. quote. I think he said that about five or six months before his company collapsed. The point takeaway there is that model worked in all environments until the environment changed. And there's a lot of strategies that were working uh, in the past in an ultra-low environment or declining rate environment that are not going to work as well going forward. And that's a perfect uh, case point with First Republic is exactly what happened, and that's directly the result of this shift in the environment. So Grant, maybe we can get a little bit more specific. How, how should our clients think about protecting themselves in this environment? Well, one, I think our clients need to stay nimble. If you think about some of the changes that are happening, if you even go back to the banking crisis that we just chatted about, the reality of it is you're gonna have a lot more vol volatility I think correlations uh, that we've become accustomed to may break down, and there's going to be more uncertainty. So uh, I think clients need to stay nimble. Uh, I think those that have an eye on value and the wherewithal to execute will be able to essentially buy low and sell high. Uh, and moreover, I expect more of our asset owner clients to have a little bit more direct management, whether that's managing in-house liquidity, whether that's buying ETFs, maybe even managing wholesale portfolios in-house. I expect to see more of that. Those asset owners that do that would be able to make shifts more quickly to either take advantage of what's going on or to manage their, their risk from it. From the asset management side, I do expect to see more custom portfolio creation around where some of these themes are playing out. So I would expect to see some growth in things like direct indexing, where you can over underweight certain factors and adjust your portfolio or your exposure, uh, not only to customize how you want to play the coming environment, but also make some tactical shifts as the environment also changes and unfolds. So staying nimble, I, I think, is the, the first big uh, takeaway from this. The second's rebalancing. So the traditional way an asset owner or any investor thinks is you start typically with how do I want to set my asset allocation strategy? Once that done, then you go about allocating those monies within those buckets. And then there's a rebalancing and review process, right? And I'm simplifying this. But um, ultimately, rebalancing matters a lot when the volatility and uncertainty picks up. There are three broad ways of rebalancing. 
And the most common that I see our clients typically use is a time-based or a weight-based. So in time, it's very simple. It's we're going to do this once a year. We'll have an assessment, and then we may make some some rebalancing trades to go back to our policy weights. On a uh, weight, it's just rules-based. If a certain allocation gets to X or Y percent, then we will rebalance. Time waiting is very dangerous in this environment because what time waiting could do is end up selling things that you actually have positive momentum and are strong and buying things with weak momentum that are going the other way. And if you're using an asset allocation model that was set when you had assumptions around interest rates that may not be as accurate going forward, you're going to keep rebalancing back to things that might not perform as well. The rules-based or weighting um, is a little bit better approach. So I would recommend that over time-based, which has been uh, demonstrated by multiple studies to be an inferior way of rebalancing. But the third way, which takes the most planning and thought, is the best way. And that is using either value or strategic rebalancing. So actually thinking about the relative value of the constituents within your portfolio, whether you're looking at it by asset class or within that asset class, and actually making decisions to rebalance based upon your own view strategically or from a valuation standpoint uh, as to where the market's going. So I think that's a really important one that, that I would encourage our clients to really scrutinize how they're rebalancing and how will it be done in a world that might be more volatile. Uh, so I think those are probably the two biggest takeaways. I also want to come back to liquidity. When you have this sort of situation, and you already saw it in this banking crisis, you're going to have liquidity crises or crunches. I don't know when or how they're going to come, but that's the whole point of a liquidity crisis is you don't know where it's coming. You don't know how it's going to manifest. So you've got to be prepared for that. So I would encourage our clients to really be thoughtful around their liquidity, probably considering a liquidity sleeve with an emphasis on daily or intraday, if you can access it, liquidity. So the ability to make shifts certainly day to day, but even within the day is paramount. Really thinking too around being transparent in your liquidity, making sure that you know what your exposure is. And I think lastly, use of high quality counterparties and investments. So if you put those three things together, then you'll be better prepared. You'll have more of a safety valve that if there is a liquidity crunch, it won't impact your operation or your investment process. Those are the three biggest takeaways, I think, to try to manage some of the uncertainty uh, that we may experience in the coming years. It's interesting that the focus on being nimble in liquidity, and when you compare that over the last several years, the, the increased allocation that we've seen to private equity and alternatives, how is that you know, playing into the, the cycle that we're in now? So it, it seems to be the opposite of, uh, yeah. of what you're talking about. I, I think you're going to see the pendulum shift back from private markets to public because of this. If you look at where we've been over the last roughly 15 years since the global financial crisis, and even the years preceding that, but especially in that really low interest rate environment, the private uh, market of investments, both private credit and private equity, really took off, especially private private credit. If you look at private credit growth since 2009, it's really ballooned. The the pendulum's going to swing back to the public markets, right? Why were people going into private credit over that time period? Because if you were staying in the public markets, you really weren't able to eke out much of a yield whatsoever in publicly traded fixed income instruments. That's different now, right? Um, even today, with the the market coming up, uh, uh, bond market rallying since the CPI numbers came out, 
and yields off a little bit, you're still seeing IG and you know, investment grade corporate bonds of quality names trading above 7% yields right now. And high, high yield is, is over 9%. So you're seeing really strong yields. And of course, the public markets have the benefit of more transparency, uh, more visibility, and more liquidity than you're going to have in the, in the private market. So I do expect that pendulum to shift. It's not to say there won't be uh, some some good opportunities and growth within the private markets, but I think that pendulum will shift back to the public markets. And the other thing in the private markets that we need to be aware of and, and really focus in on is there was a, a lot of, of, of private investment investing done when interest rates were essentially zero. So now the interest rates are markedly higher, there's probably going to be some pain that will come out of some of those investments that were made when the base rate assumption was essentially zero. So I do have some concerns around the private market. And one of the things that I think is really important for our clients is to have a very holistic view of their private and public portfolios. So that's one of the big takeaways, too, is I do expect the pendulum to swing back to the public market. But having a view and having the ability to analyze your entire investment portfolio between public and private markets is increasingly important in this in this environment. Well, Grant, I must say, if this is our kickoff to our, our monthly Market Pulse uh, podcast series, I think you've, you've done a great job getting us uh, kicked off, provided a lot of fantastic insights. So, uh, our closing question you know, would be, you know, what, do you have any, any thoughts on you know, how our clients can take this information faster forward in either their, their work life or their personal life? I really would challenge most people to take a step back and really think about the environment, both the interest rate environment we were in before and where we're headed as well as the factors that drove that and scrutinize their own portfolios, whether it's their personal portfolio or the portfolios they represent professionally, and really scrutinize how are their investments structured if interest rates are going to be higher on a secular basis. So that's the number one takeaway. I would just want people to really be critical and reassess their own investment strategy with a different lens if they haven't done so already. I do want a caveat in the back end of this that we're not here to say that interest rates next year are necessarily going much higher or lower. The point is these are secular trends. They're going to play out over many, many years. So it's really just an exercise in being thoughtful and recognizing those shifts. We tend to get very anchored to what's happened recently. And my real goal in our discussion today is to really get people to challenge and think about the environment, how it's changed, and how it might impact their portfolios. Well, Grant, thank you very much for joining us on Faster Forward, and thank you to our listeners. Looking forward to our next Market Pulse by Faster Forward. Thanks for having me, Mark. <laughs>